Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Gary Marks, who is Professor of Political Science at UNC Chapel Hill. We discuss the work of Seymour Martin Lipset and focus on three main themes in Lipset's body of work. We first discuss Lipset's 1960 book, Political Man, which includes a number of essays that have become classics of political sociology and political science more generally. Central themes of the book are the social requisites for democracy and the group basis of politics. Our second focus is on Lipset and Rockhan's cleavage theory and the formation and transformation of party systems. In line with the main ideas of political man, we discuss cleavage theory as a sociological and group-based approach to political competition and contrast it with the Downsian perspective. The third part of the conversation covers Gary's joint work with Lipset that addresses the question of why there has never been a successful socialist party in the United States. The conversation goes beyond the work of Lipset alone and focuses on several main themes of political sociology, as well as many political transformations of the past hundred years. If you want to know more about Gary and his work, you can visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Gary. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So today we're going to talk about the work of Seymour Martin Lipset, or Marty Lipset, as I've now learned preparing for this podcast. And we agreed to focus on three thematic blocks out of the really vast amount and scope of Lipset's body of work. First, we're going to talk about political man, then second about American exceptionalism, and third about cleavage theory. Before we start talking about these questions in more depth, I just wanted to ask you, could you tell us a little more how you know or how you knew Marty Lipset? Uh, yes, indeed. Tariq, I, I um, first met him when he came to Stanford. It was in, I think, probably about the third or the fourth year of um, probably the third year of my uh, PhD studies at Stanford University. Um, and I'd previously, previously been kind of working with uh, Gabriel Almond and Marty Lipset was there and I got to uh, know him quite uh, quickly. Um, he's a very kind of accessible person. Before I knew him for too long, he was allowing me to go right through his extensive uh, files of, of articles. I soon um, you know, copied him in that respect. Um, and then I was essentially uh, working with him as my PhD advisor. And... Then I later became his uh, research assistant, actually soon afterwards. And um, there I was working quite um, closely. I had the office next to him in the uh, Hoover Institution. And um, I was working uh, quite closely with him on his uh, presidential address to the American Political Science Association. He was asked to do an expanded edition of, of Political Man, uh, which I uh, worked with him on. And then there was a, 
an essay that he wrote on the revolt against modernity on uh, on regional um, authority so that was the first that's my was my initial uh, kind of connection with uh, with Marty Lipset everyone called him Marty i mean that is that was his name all the graduate students whether they knew him well or not um, would refer to him as as Marty and then later when i went back to um, the Hoover Institution as a national fellow i began to work with him on the um, on a book that we published um, um, not soon thereafter, I would have to say, but about, I don't know, about um, 14 years or 15 years thereafter. It took us a long time to write that book. We wrote several versions of it. And um, that was then as a co-author. And then um, later when I went back to, um, actually in the middle of that, when I went back to Stanford at the uh, the Center um, for Advanced Study in the Bay Hill for Sciences, uh, Larry uh, Larry Diamond and I um, arranged a feshrift for for Marty. At the end of which, um, Marty gave me a a, a, a sweet, a lovely, a silver box with the word student, colleague, friend, and I guess that's the three ways in which I uh, connected with uh, with Marty. And then in the very last days, I mean, uh, we published the um, the book. It didn't happen here. Why socialism failed in the United States in, um, I think it was 2001, but soon thereafter, I think it was a matter of months um, thereafter, Marty suffered a stroke, which was sad and which put him in, in really in bed. I visited him a few times. He was based in Washington, D.C., and I kept up with him then, calling him occasionally, and the last kind of direct connection was um, at, his, uh, at his funeral in, in 2005 when I was a pallbearer. And then together with uh, Sydney Lipset, his uh, second wife, we compiled a, I suppose, a compendium of, uh, of his writings. So it was a connection that, you know, lasted for, for um, over, actually, the sense of my entire um, career until the, um, the mid-2000s. Um, so that was the, um, uh, that was the connection. And yes, so now preparing for this podcast, I was really struck again by the really vast amount of his work and the many influential, influential pieces uh, he wrote that I think really shaped uh, how we think about politics today. One fact that I found striking um, is that Lipsel is, I think, the only person who was ever president of the American Sociological Association and the American Political Science Association. So a true political sociologist. And that would be my first question for you. How do you think, what is the difference? How does a sociologist look at politics differently? You know, that's a very good question. And I think the, the reason takes one to the core of political sociology, and that is a political sociologist looks at the group basis of attitudes and and behavior, and that is um, precisely what Marty did in in um, in most of his major uh, major writings. I'd have to say, particularly at the um, at the beginning of his of his career, you know, we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about political man, but that is the the key motive of um, of political man, and actually, um, incidentally, uh, Tariq, that is actually a the key motive of, of my own work, and that is the group basis of attitudes and, um, and, and behavior. And it's true, there was a recent article 
on Marty Lipset's um, Influence that was published just a year or two ago. And um, it made the point that Marty has was much more has been much more influential in political science than um, than in sociology. Um, so it really is a an application, I think, chiefly in his work of of sociology, the understanding of the of the communal context, the the sociality of political um, behavior and uh, and attitudes, and that's rather different. I wonder if you agree. I think that's rather different from an economic approach, which very much focuses in on um, on the individual and the and the way in which a, an individual deals with the certainly with the complex social world around him or her, but very focused on on the individual response to that, the cognitive response, the economic response to those um, constraints, rather than. The, an, uh, an understanding of the political, social sources of um, attitudes and behavior. I think that's very interesting. And I don't know if you would agree, but my feeling is that in the last maybe five years or so, we have seen a bit of a resurgence of this group perspective. And I think very often as, a, uh, as an attempt to explain uh, the current backlash against maybe liberal democracy, uh, populist support, uh, Trump support. So many of these explanations actually go back to the, the group as a core uh, political unit instead maybe a, a, a the individual. I think that's true. And I think that does reflect the world in which we're, we're living in. Soon after, um, Marty Lipset and Stein Rokan published their classic paper on cleavages in 1967, um, there was very much the sense that that social basis, the organizational basis, the way in which organizations, unions and churches particularly, um, framed the context for individual partisanship and the decline of those institutions, particularly in Western Europe, of course, that there was very much the, the, the view that one had to look at individual preferences, and one had to start with, with those. There was a, a sense that individuals had a scope of choice, a choice that education had provided for them to detach themselves from their inherited or social uh, context. Um, and I think what we've seen in recent years is the, the kind of re-emergence of, of an interest in the way in which one really can pin down the, the sources of individual preferences by looking at the, um, con uh, you might say, conventional social basis of political activity. And that has to do with um, occupation, um, status, uh, religion, um, location, urban, rural, and also now um, education. Mm -hmm. And these are certainly many categories that I'm sure we'll come back to during the podcast. Now, if we start with uh, Political Man, uh, I think Political Man includes a lot of essays, chapters that many people are familiar with. So, for example, on the relationship between economic development and democracy, questions about the democratic class struggle, also questions about working class authoritarianism. What would you say is the overarching theme of the book, though? 
Well, Tariq, I think we've we've kind of mentioned that it really is the that socioeconomic differences shape um, shape behaviour. Um, Marty once described himself um, as an apolitical Marxist, and I think that that's interesting, isn't it? It it really is reflected very clearly in that in one of the most influential pieces that you mentioned, the social requisites of um, of democracy, which has a a rather straightforward bottom line. I mean, the boiled down version um, of that um, of that paper originally published in the APSR, the theory of modernization that there was this there is this simple correlation between per capita income and democracy, and then there's the more subtle version, which has to do with rising educational levels, urbanization, um, industrialization, but it's very much a a conception of the possibility of democracy rooted in the way in which a society develops economically and also um, socially. So it is that socioeconomic grounding of um, behavior and, and institutions. Um, that is actually my second most favorite paper in that it's a, it, it's a book of, of papers that were published, in, uh, published previously, uh, most of them. Um, and that's the one on working class authoritarianism, which I still, actually, in preparation for this, I reread that um, that uh, that chapter, and it really is it really is amazing in terms of its foresight, and the way in which, in 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 I think in two main respects, one that workers had this tendency or um, the possibility of 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 turning towards a nationalism, that when you look, if you were to look at liberalism in terms of economic redistribution, the working class is more liberal than the middle class. But if you focus on tolerance and respect for individual liberty, the working class is less liberal than the middle class. And so already there, you see these, the kind of contraposition of these two dimensions, a an economic dimension and a dimension that we later have described as um, li- as libertarianism, authoritarianism, or Gal Green alternative um, libertarianism, and Tan traditional authority and and nationalism, and so he's very keyed into that already um, by the nineteen late nineteen fifties. So it really, you know, I think that set of ideas so clearly articulated in that uh, chapter speak to the contemporary. Um, analyses of support of those with less education, those in lower occupational positions for these radical nationalist parties. Actually, Tariq, I have a little couple of sentences which perhaps I can read to you. As I was going through this, I I noted these down, um, and they really are amazing, I think. And the context is the development of socialist parties before World War I and the way in which workers were part of a fight for greater political democracy, um, religious freedom and minority rights. And actually, Marty once turned around to me and said that he thought that the greatest contribution of socialism, of the socialist parties, was to bring people who had less education to an understanding of cosmopolitanism and international peace. I think that's a very revealing statement. But what he writes in 
this uh, paper is, is, is the following. Ever since 1914, um, these patterns have gradually been eroded. And then he writes, in some nations, working class groups have proved to be the most nationalistic sector of the population. In some, they have been at the forefront of the struggle against equal rights for minority groups and have sought to limit immigration and impose racial standards in countries with open immigration. And I think that really, you know, if that had been written today, I would not have been surprised. But already in 1960, I think that's really a, uh, a foresighted statement. I think that's that, that's very interesting and um, also brings me back to the, the, the your, your first statement of Lipset as um, a non-ideological Marxist. And I, like, we see, right, the, the materialist perspective and the strong role that economic and socioeconomic relationships have in his work. But there's always also a second, um, I would say, social, maybe even communitarian element. I thought a bit of, I, I, I was reminded actually now rereading it, a lot of Aristotle's work. So this neo-Aristotelian perspective of the role of the middle and community and then the middle class for for sustaining uh, democracy. And I think that comes through then in, in, in this perspective too, when he also sees this as a very critical perspective on communism or his argument that then the, the, the working class authoritarians might be more drawn to communism, not as an economic system, but actually as a social system that's much more authoritarian. Uh, absolutely. And one of the explanations for that, for, for this propensity of individual workers less educated, he, he makes that he, he actually makes the distinction between educated workers and less educated workers. And he says that in societies where you have a, an established, moderate, social democratic or labor party, it's the more educated workers who will turn to, um, to, turn to communism, which is interesting. By virtue of its um, more complex ideological uh, structure. But he explains working class authoritarianism chiefly in terms of the isolation of workers from the rest of the uh, society and particularly in groups of workers who are geographically um, isolated, like the hard rock miners in uh, the United States, in, in West Virginia and other, other estates, or, or in terms of the coal miners. And it's very much the, this kind of social rootedness. And the, um, then his, the other, the third chapter, which I think is so, is so particularly interesting, is the one on fascism and and middle class radicalism, and there it is the the economic insecurity of particular middle class groups who were not able to to survive economically in the industrializing world of of Germany. Um, these were small farmers. These were um, individuals whose status was being was being threatened. So I think political man really is a, it really is a kind of an apolitical Marxism. But in uh, Marty Lipsitz's later work, he actually turns to, 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 to the, what he would earlier have described as a superstructure, and that is the role of, um, of culture. And particularly in his work comparing the United States and Canada, it's very, 
in in for example in this book Continental Divide, it's there's very much a cultural perspective which focuses on American values of anti-statism um, and individualism and egalitarianism, and that led him. We'll have a chance to discuss this later, but that led him to the view that he sometimes expressed that that individualism was the functional and egalitarianism was the functional equivalence of socialism, which can help explain why the United States never became, never had a strong, stable, durable social democratic party, which is a view that I find um, pretty questionable. But it's, it does reveal a kind of a, a, a slight shift in Marty Lipset's work as he um, in, in his in his kind of later years. Mm-hmm. You already mentioned a couple of points in Political Man that I think are very a predictive of the politics of today, but also challenge some perspectives, I think. And I wanted to go through with you one by one. And the first thing you mentioned was that in, in Lipset's argument, it is really the role of socialist, social democratic parties um, to turn the working class away from authoritarianism and toward a more progressive international perspective. And this seems to me to go strongly against an idea that we have at the moment where um, it is given as an explanation for the decline of social democracy that they are have become too progressive and that actually the ideas uh, that the, the authoritarian working class has turned their back on social democratic parties. Yes. Um, actually, Marty had a, uh, an explanation for that in an essay which he um, entitled The End of Ideology. And that was essentially that socialist parties were the victims of their own um, success. That is to say... The and this is work actually that he that Marty did in another context in his presidential address to the American Political Science Association, and that is where that if, if you were to take um, the year 1900 or any year immediately before World War One, the gap between the, um, the socialists and the and established groups conservatives would have been absolutely vast. Socialists were demanding the end of the system of wage labor, a fundamental transformation of, of the economy. And conservatives in many societies, and the, this is a, a point of variation, were involved in suppressing or repressing uh, social democratic parties. And that had changed so fundamentally in the post-Second World War era. In the UK, we have this term, butskillism, from uh, Rab Butler and Hugh Gateskill, Gateskill, leader of the Labour Party, um, Butler, a, a leading light in the Conservative Party in the 1950s and, 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 and 60s. And they really converged in conceiving planning under and welfare under, uh, under capitalism. And so as the tension, as the motivation for this enormous you know, gap in terms of the conception of society narrowed, so the um, salience of the occupational cleavage, the the class cleavage uh, declined. And I think this is part of a story which one could tell about the shift of of social democratic parties to encompass um, those who had 
um, educational, higher status, socioeconomic um, role in the in the society. And so, the in a way, you might say that the decline of labour and the very strong, tight connection between social democratic parties and the working class is linked to the declining gap in terms of policy preferences between revolutionary socialists, early revolutionary socialists, and uh, and capitalists. You already mentioned a second group, right? It's, I think, very relevant also for the politics of today. And these are the lower middle classes. And you already mentioned Lipset's argument, how they were an essential group to understand fascism. Can you reiterate that argument a little bit? Yeah, I think it's the it has to do with the fear of proletarianization. And that actually that actually relates to both to the um, kind of lower middle classes, those who fear that they may be thrown into the pro, the ranks of the proletarian, that is those people who have nothing to sell about their their labor power and and the higher ranks of the working class, the so-called aristocracy um, of of, um, of labor. And so it's an argument about the way in which economic insecurity can breed a political um, radicalism. And that essentially is the argument um, in, the, uh, in the chapter in Political Man having to do with the middle-class support for, uh, for fascism. And there the, the challenge actually was a methodological challenge, and that was due to the ecological character of the, um, of the data that is, uh, that is available there. But I think it's fair to say, and this is something that Marty Lipset picks up in the, in the expanded edition of, of Political Man, which was published in um, 1984, um, that the, I think much of the research has confirmed um, that view. Although it's also true to say that around one-third of the supporters of the Nazi party in the, uh, in the, um, in the free elections that, uh, of 1932, for example, around one-third were, uh, were workers. But what you see at the aggregate level is that when you combine the, the vote of the, um, the Social Democratic Party and the Communist Party, there's only a loss of around 3% with respect to its you know, the aggregate level of voting support in the, in the country as a whole. So it really was the, the, the Protestant lower middle classes, the, the collapse of the Protestant parties in, mostly in the rural areas in Germany. That was the real kind of potential, the source of, of the enormous rise of Nazi support from uh, the election of 1928 to 1932. And interestingly then, Lipset, of course, has... Uh, another essay in the 1950s on uh, social status and the contemporary, at this time contemporary, uh, far right also in the United States. And I think his explanation is a, is a similar one, where really where status threat or the, uh, the risk of status loss, especially for those people whose status is not necessarily derived from their economic position in society, but really from... Um, from factors that are difficult to regain once they're, they're lost. And to me, this again seemed so predictive of many developments today that really underpin the rise of the radical right. 
Um, well, I think you know one um, can say that he's. It's it's it, it was actually for for Marty Lips. It was part of a debate between Karl Marx and Weber. Karl Marx didn't really delve deeply into status. For him, it was much more the position of an individual in relation to the um, to the means of production. And so this was the kind of the the later. I think it's really the later Marty who took a more Weberian turn. And in his uh, the, the paper that he wrote, his address to the American Political Science Association, status looms very large in explaining the degree of radicalism among social uh, socialist parties. And so it really, it, it, it becomes a kind of a status um, approach. Um, that is, that's something that I've, I've taken issue with in, in some of my work. And that is, I think, the connections now between the voting for Green parties and for radical nationalist parties can be linked quite um, directly to um, education and to, um, and to occupation. And I, w- I think of status as, as a way of understanding economic insecurity that derives from um, objective factors in relation to people's occupational uh, position and their insecurities that that can generate, and so um, that's one of the kind of the elements that I, I um I have not actually kind of developed in my own work, and I actually replicated Marty's analysis of variation among social democratic parties with respect to to two factors: one, the extent to which workers were repressed by the state prior to World War I, and two, the relations that um, unions had with uh, political parties. And essentially the argument there is that unions tend to be located within the system of capitalism, and they were able to gain some, where they were strong, where they were strongly organized, they were able to gain some leverage to improve working class conditions. And so they acted as a as a constraint on the revolutionism of, of socialist parties. So in that sense, I think the the kind of the earlier lips at the social requisites of democracy, and particularly working class authoritarianism, which is very concerned with the um, socioeconomic uh, differences, and to see status as a, a outcome of these rather than as an independent uh, factor. So, um, you know, I don't deny that status will play a, a, a large role, but I'm just wondering whether the extent to which um, that is endogenous to factors like urban-rural location, religion, um, occupation, education, then one can actually root in, the, uh, in a kind of a political sociology. Mm-hmm. There's one overarching theme uh, that I saw in the book now, looking at it again, that we haven't talked about so much yet. And this is this the relationship between conflict and consensus and this the, the difficulties for democracy to allow conflict but also to ha- have enough consensus to sustain itself that I think was very, is very central in political man. Yeah, and it, it also comes out in the AGIL 
framework in the um, in the in the partisan party systems uh, paper with uh, with Stein uh, Rockan, and this is this as you as you put it so nicely this duality this tension between consensus um, and conflict, and the notion that a democracy is not a is is not based on consensus but rather on institutionalizing channels of conflict such that they do not um, blow the society apart. There's also a, a, a social basis to this, right? And I think there, I, again, you very much see the, the sociologists and this is this role of social circles and the, the, the necessity to, I think, as he writes, to have a working class Tory so that you need these overlapping social circles and not just a reinforcement um, of different type of um, political and social circles that then can sustain democracy. Yes, absolutely. And this is that key um, concept of cross-cutting cleavages that Marty develops in um, in political man and and, and beyond, um, which is very, which is you know, it, which which is a way of understanding how the intensity of political emotions and convictions can be reduced by virtue of the the, the kind of the dual character of of affiliation and that is you're a, you're a majority on one issue but a minority um, on another and i think it also explains why um it's so difficult to predict at the individual level how an individual is going to vote because an individual may live in a a worker may live in a rural um area or somebody who has a low uh, socioeconomic status may have some relatively high degree of, of education or urban um, location. There's so many ways in which cross-cutting pressures on individuals can express themselves, and in which case you're never quite sure um, how that individual is going to, to vote. Is a Catholic worker in Germany going to vote for the, um, for the Christian Democratic Party, or is uh, he or she going to vote for the uh, Social Democratic uh, Party? So there are many cases in which that is, you know, you, you find that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the extent to which we can explain variance in voting at the individual level is, is so um, attenuated. That is, there's so many contexts in which there can be pressures on individuals that point in different political directions. There's, of course, a long-running debate in sociology on the question of how much these class membership or milieus still uh, matter for um, political preferences, social behavior, and then related, of course, also to the question of how much political behavior and party loyalty is still structured um, by these socioeconomic factors. What's your position on this? Well, I, well you know, we went through a, 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 an interesting kind of period. Really, it was the Owl of Minerva when um, when Lipset and Rakan published their, their their article. And in the years thereafter, it, it, it seemed to be the case that those social anchors, you know, they, we, we didn't really need a political sociology 
we needed a an uh, an economic politics. That is, we were looking at individual choice, and essentially, this is this is the way in which, um, or the reason why Downsian theory became so um, influential, and that is what all that you could really say. What you could should focus on are individual preferences, which are exogenous, and party positions. And party positions will respond in a competitive strategic framework to the patent of the distribution of individual um, preferences. And that's very different from the way in which Lipset and Rakhine and the cleavage approach went about it, where they really try to kind of locate individual preferences in terms of basic historical um, developments, the cleavages, the, the basic political conflicts that arose um, historically that were layered um, on, um, on each other. And in the 1960s, really, in the, from the mid-1960s or even early, certainly through the 1970s and 80s, the, the tying together of those social bases with individual uh, decisions about voting seemed to be fraying. And so we really focus on, 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 on the individual characteristics without being able to say very much in a systematic way about where individuals came from. But I think, um, I think that period was an unusual one. And I think it was an unusual one because the intensity, the salience of the cleavages that Lipset and Rakan pointed to, uh, perhaps with the exception of the center periphery, um, which started to, which kind of rose again in certain countries, for example, in the United Kingdom, Scotland, particularly from the from the early 1970s. But generally speaking, religion and the occupational cleavage, the class cleavage, um, seemed to be um, softening. And I think they were softening for very good reasons. And Marty Lipset would say the, the fundamental reason for that was that in the context of democratic competition, that there was a, an agreement to differ. These were institutionalized and the intensity diminished as compromises were made in democratic class conflict. And so we seem to be in a, in a, in a world in which fundamental issues were not on the, on the table, but rather there was the strategic shifting of political parties. Individuals had high levels of choice across party positions that really didn't differ so um, fundamentally. But I think what has come to the fore in, 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 recent, um, in, in recent decades is our more fundamental issues that are being put on the table. And I think they arise in some changes in the jurisdictional structure of political life. Remember for in the 1960s um, and 1970s, the jurisdictional structure was given. Nobody argued in the West about borders. Ethnicity was regarded as as unacceptable to raise in the context of democratic competition because the history, the memories of the war were so acute and ethnicity was regarded as something that would lead to, to fascism, 
to the dead end of of Nazism and and and, and possibly war. And so competition was very much constrained, if you like, within what was deemed to be an economic left-right, who gets what and, and, and how. And so you know, one could actually then say, well, let's not understand um, political competition in terms of cleavages. Let's frame this on a left-right dimension. And that was precisely what Downs and, 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 and Downsians uh, did. So we could simplify competition to a single um, dimension. And I think what has happened since then is that that post-war kind of compromise or consensus where you didn't talk about things that are fundamental attributes of human beings, that is ethnicity and the structure of authority um, itself, those have been raised on the political agenda. And in Europe, they've been raised in the shape of European integration and the perceived transfer of of authority, that is decision making over important things to the European level, um, the enormous increase in trade that has taken place since the 1990s, an enormous and sustained increase in trade that has only been not reversed but but flattened in the last few years. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, um, immigration, the mixing of individuals with very different cultures or the perception of very different uh, values and, um, and cultures. And so I think it's possible that one can perceive the introduction of a, um, of a new cleavage uh, that I think actually has socioeconomic sources in the kind of economy that we now live in, the information um, economy. And so my own reading of the, 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 the shift to a political sociology of politics and of voting is, is rooted in what I regard as the rather kind of cute, if you like, or very unusual period that we, we lived through following World War following World War II, the 1960s, 70s and 80s, when politics, in a way, was perceived to have been solved. That is to say, we had reduced the intensity of conflict in our societies to economic issues and the fundamental political issues of who are we? How do we conceive our community? How do we conceive our polity? Who, 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 who rules us? How are we going to organize political life? Those had been, I would say, put under the, swept under the rug. And I think World War II and the effect of World War II, the horrors of World War II are a fundamental you know, part of that. But it couldn't last forever. And there was a, a massive, at first unrecognized really, shift towards international interaction, towards transnationalism in respect to authority, the movement of people and the movement of things, of goods, um, that has um, changed that. And I think what it's done from an intellectual or scientific perspective is that it has re-energized um, political uh, sociology. So now when I look back 
and read um, Political Man, I see something that is in some some ways talks directly to some of the issues, many of the issues uh, that we confront today, and that's the idea of working class authoritarianism particularly, which really I think, and the passage that I read earlier, really kind of strikes home in terms of the way in which the social context, the social setting of individuals, um, and also it's raised there quite explicitly, the importance of education. Um, Education has become a source of of difference rather than simply a source of choice, as it appeared to be in the 1980s. I think that's a very interesting uh, perspective to say the resurgence of the conflict aspect of uh, political competition has also led to a reviving of the political sociology perspective on political competition. We have we're now already deep in the in the world of, of, of cleavage theory and party systems. I would suggest we, we continue a little bit uh, with that. And maybe if we go back, this is of course one of the maybe most cited pieces uh, that exists in political science. Can you tell me what was novel about the perspective taken in uh, this approach by uh, Lipset and Rokhan? I'm not sure that it, it was it was um, it was that novel. I think what it did was it it picked up pieces, ideas that were circulating and elaborated them very precisely, very particularly in terms of an understanding of the European pattern of political parties, the party families, and the way in which you can understand this with in in terms of the historical development. I suppose that really is is novel, but Marty Lipset was a actually a student of Paul Lazersfeld in Columbia. It really, I one way of kind of reading the article with um, with Lipset, um, the Lipset Rican piece, is it's the application of the Columbia School of voting and um, and electoral competition in the context of Europe and the history of of Europe. The focus then has to be on the historical layering of um, of conflicts and the discontinuity of the development of 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 conflict and the way in which this could then lead to 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 um, cross cutting um, pressures. So I think what you have there is a is a it's actually quite when I assign this to my um, graduate students, is a challenging piece to read because it, there's a lot of uh, detail there. And then the schema that precedes it, the Parsonian AGIL schema, is very abstract. And there are a number of ways in which Lipset and, and, um, and particularly Rokhan try to bring this abstract frame into conjunction with the historical detail and the detail about contemporary, for them, contemporary party systems. Um, so it's a complicated, it's a complicated analysis. But what I think it it does is it, it provides a way of understanding a political conflict in terms of the development of political oppositions as fundamental social change 
disrupts the status quo and produces in clearly defined social groups the sense of grievance and the basic um, historical changes that they discuss have produced the, some distinctive characteristics of, of Europe, the creation of national states, the development of an industrial um, society. Um, unfortunately, one of the things that, that they mentioned, a word, a, a term, a concept they used, freezing, let, became a, a target of, of criticism, particularly given, as I mentioned before, the Isle of Minerva, that is the institutional setting and the organizational embedding of those of partisanship was fading at the very in Europe was fading at the very uh, fading at the very time that they um, were writing. So it was a an article that seemed more relevant in the 1980s and 1990s, really as a target, with a few exceptions. Uh, Hans Peter Kreisi would be an exception. There were some others, uh, Herbert Kitschelt, but. The general movement of the general thrust of analysis of elections and and voting was really in the in, in the other direction. That is to say, there's individual choice and how we're going to understand the, those choices, and that was and that was perceived very much in terms of not in terms of distal factors, but in terms of factors that were very closely connected to particular elections. That is the the, the views of, of 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 voters with regard to particular political leaders or the particular behavior of a government in 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 over the last few years so it became very precipitate the the causal um, analysis and so we really kind of you know other than than a, than a few writers most people were in a very different um, a very different frame of a um, of of analysis, and I think um, what's happened in more recent years is that cleavage analysis has has kind of been, as I mentioned before, has been re-energized um, because there really does seem to be an intensification of um, of party loyalty, and that's true particularly in the United States, and and uh, many have argued that it's also true in in Europe as well, and party positions are becoming have become more discreet, more discernible as being differentiated in some fundamental uh, way. Politics has, has a more existential uh, character today than it did in, 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 in past decades. You know, I think the, the article itself is, as a great article, you know, with the, the articles that we often think of as classic articles have a kind of a second life. And I think there, this article in particular has had a second life, and I haven't charted the citations to cleavage theory, but my strong sense is that those citations have increased over the past um, over the past few years. So I think there's been a resuscitation um, of this. Another thing you might say is that 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 article, the first major historical force that sets off the uh, the cleavage picture is that of nation building. So it was a jurisdictional change. And 
the the battle of nation builders vis-a-vis the uh, the communities that were on the periphery and those battles that took place created a tension between the center and the periphery that we actually see now in um, several parts of Europe uh, Catalonia Scotland the Basque country just being uh, the leading examples and what one can say is that you know that too is kind of reverberated in into the context in the in the present context because the jurisdictional frame of Europe is also now being recast with the development of 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 uh, of, of Europe and the authority of of Europe across many policy um, areas and so kind of interestingly the the, the cleavage pattern picture begins with nation building changing jurisdictional the jurisdictional life of um, of politics um, and Europe then doing the same and the debate about Europe you know there's a specific debate about the European Union and that debate began with the idea that Europe was unconnected to domestic politics and was actually as an extension of a of the Downsian model, that what you needed to do to understand individual preferences over Europe was to look at whether an individual benefited or not. And there was some very interesting and useful literature that did precisely that. But gradually it became evident that Europe was entering domestic politics and that really what really did matter was the way in which individuals perceived themselves as part of larger national groups and whether that perception was exclusive or inclusive. If it was exclusive, one would conceive of oneself as being English or British and nothing else, not European, whereas others could conceive it, I suppose I'm an example of that, as being inclusive, that you could do both at the same time. And there was a debate in every country with particular characteristics um, about inclusiveness and exclusiveness of national identity. And so the way that literature has developed has been to bring Europe into domestic politics and actually to conceive European integration as part of the development of a, a new cleavage that is connect, that is bringing together several several views of how your community connects to uh, to others particularly with respect to uh, immigration and um, and immigrants so it's it's a paper that actually sp- spoke outside of its own domain to developments that could never have been anticipated by uh, Marty Lipset or um, or Stein uh, Rockan mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that in, uh, earlier you mentioned uh, the Columbia School and uh, this perspective on electoral behavior, so the sociological perspective on electoral behavior. What I noticed putting a political man next to ne- next to um, the cleavage theory essay was that at both levels, I think Lipset uh, emphasizes the expressive function of uh, political behavior, but also political representation. So the, 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 the fact that very much in line with the sociological approach, uh, 
voting or political behavior more generally is an is, is an expression of identity. And then also at the at the political parties level, that this is a a representation of these identities much more than an instrumental perspective that then is also dominant again in the in, in the dungeon uh, world of looking at political parties. Absolutely. And uh, that is so very true. I mean, they use the term Weltanschauungen, that is world ideologies, views, to describe the um, the commitment of political parties to um, to particular programs. And I and I, I found that very um, valid in in my own um, research, my own research with uh, with Lisbeth Hoger and and with others um, concerning the difficulty that political parties have in changing their 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 basic position um, on at the dimensional level, whereas they are always adapting at the level of individual policies. But with respect to their brands, it's been it is very difficult for a, a social democratic party to say, well, we are not actually socialist. Blair and the Labour Party, Blair tried to reframe the Labour Party uh, to do precisely that, but um, as we can see, was um, essentially unable to uh, to carry that uh, carry that through. And so, political parties really do seem to be very much rooted in particular brands and um while they're always shifting at the level of issues um brands are are very difficult to uh, to shift and actually i think downs himself would not have been in a sense surprised by that because he he argued that um there's very little information about political parties in in the minds of voters uh, there has to be a cognitive economy um, there's very little to be gained by gain, by having a much more um, refined view, and so um, it's very it's not easy for political parties to change the information that uh, that voters associate um, with them, and this notion of brand I think is a very useful concept to you know to understand why parties are so constrained at the dimensional level in terms of their the way in which they are fundamentally perceived by um, by voters. And so what that suggests is that the dynamism in party systems um, doesn't come from political parties um, strategically relocating themselves in some dimensional space, but rather from the development of, of political oppositions in relation to basic changes in the status quo and I think one can detect that both in the development of radical nationalists, or we call them tan parties, um, and also in green parties. And in green parties, I think what, what we kind of we know the story for tan parties. That is to say, the way in which um, international exchange has thrust those without education, those who are manual workers, in competition with people in rural areas in China who have moved into the cities and whose wages are very low by comparison. And that's just one economic aspect of this. There are others uh, besides. But for green voters, I mean, the, the, 
impetus for Green Parties came chiefly from women who felt that they were unfairly constrained with respect to control over their own bodies and their own lifestyles. And so I think the this the fundamental shift in the economies having to do with the uh, informational revolution in economic production really did give rise to grievances that have underpinned both the development of, of Green Parties and of radical um, nationalist parties. So that then would be a kind of a direct extension of cleavage theory into the uh, contemporary um, context. Now, with everything you've just explained to us, I was wondering, do we not get a question that we usually ask um, about the transformation of the political space actually exactly um, upside down? Do we have that question upside down? So the way you just described those fundamental transformations of political cleavages, shouldn't we expect that those would be represented by completely new parties? So the way we look at the transformation of the political space is often that we say, how can we explain the decline of mainstream parties. And shouldn't we rather say it's surprising that they have held on uh, somewhat successfully considering how much cleavages have changed? I think the response to that would be in terms of the, of the historical layering of cleavages. So when you look at extant uh, party systems, what you do see are the, uh, particularly in, in low threshold systems, in PR systems, what one sees is a is a kind of a historical kind of layering of political parties just in the way that uh, Lipset and Rakan I think would have expected and so you see Christian democratic parties the religious cleavage has been attenuated but it is still a present and Christian democratic parties themselves have become uh, interjurisdictional um, they've softened the proposition that religion should structure political and social um, life. You still have social democratic parties um, based on uh, the occupational cleavage, but also um, appealing to um, um, on social issues to more educated um, individuals, um, and particularly um, younger students and, and, and others with um, education. Um, so, you know, there have been changes in the articulation of, of political parties, But it's not as if there is a single dimension on which parties are kind of juxtaposing uh, themselves, but rather, you know, there are multiple dimensions of, of, of contestation. And, the, you know, that's precisely... So rather than looking um, at a realignment in which you might expect, you know, to see one axis of contestation shift, I think what we are, what we are seeing is the production of, of an additional or additional basis of, of, of commitment. So I think it would be quite, um, you know, to be expected that, the, that new parties have arisen and that the mainstream parties have not been able to, um, to adjust to this, which is surprising, given that the information available to mainstream parties is, is really second to none. I mean, it's... it's um, Tariq, it's well for us to you know discuss about party strategy, but given that party strategy is 
existential for the mainstream parties. And given that they have resources, you know, I think one would have to expect that um, they do have information about their um, about the the um, consequences of alternative courses of action. I think what constrains them are their um, sunk costs. It has to do with the the history of of commitment and their activists, the way in which their leaders replicate themselves, and the way in which their brands are deposited, located in in the electorate, and that's so difficult to 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 reconfigure. And so I think what we see is the growth of 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 new parties, which have very minor resources compared to the extant major parties. So I think that is what is um, kind of so surprising. If really, if you imagine a, a, um, a, a market, if it really was a kind of a market in which parties are instrumental with respect to their commitments, I, would, I think it would make that more surprising that the mainstream parties were not able to adjust and encompass the new issues um, as as they arose, so I do think that this the idea that the sources of dynamism come from outside the party system, and that the party system is kind of a a relatively rooted set of organisations um, that adapts only partially and dis- and and discontinuously to those um, external forces and that the dynamism comes actually from voters and um, from voters shifting. I, I guess I'm not, I'm not surprised that um, the major parties have, you know, still sustained some of their support. But what I think is really kind of fascinating and in a sense surprising is that f- from a Downsian perspective is that new political parties could simply arise given the fact that they had they started from almost nothing, and their resources were very small in relation to those of the extant parties, that they now are in a position of gaining, in some countries, more than 20% of the vote, and in some countries, even more than that. And so I think that is the, you know, that is something that I think cleavage theory can explain with with some, um, you know, some validity. And I think that's my own view is that it's that an explanation generated by cleavage theory is kind of more elegant than one that um, is developed in the context of of Downsian theory. But I, you know, as we we had a little discussion before we began, and I do think that spatial theory and cleavage theory are not fundamentally incompatible. That spatial theory, that the the argument that individuals have preferences, parties have. Um, have positions, and that in general, one would expect that some algorithm, which would which would focus on the distance between individual preferences and party positions, would give you a, a pretty good read on where individuals would, you know, would how they would vote. And I don't think those two theories are fundamentally incompatible. I think what cleavage theory does is it provides a a political sociology of the exog- what what in Downsian theory are exogenous influences. In cleavage theory, these are actually endogenous. 
Um, and it's true to say that one can only, that as a predictive theory, it's very would be very difficult to predict the next fundamental change in society. But once it takes place, I think one can generate some expectations about how that would actually create grievances that could then, under certain conditions, lead to the development, the growth of uh, of new political parties. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good moment to to shift to our third uh, topic and the work that you jointly did with with Marty Lipset on the question of why there's never been a successful socialist party in the United States. Can you explain that phenomenon or puzzle a little more to me? I'd be happy to. This is one of the topics that I um, that I love to talk about because. As a Brit coming to the United States, it was always evident to me, transparent, that somehow the air was different, that the political air was different, and that there were these, that there was an exceptionalism. Of course, every country is exceptional in some way, but uh, but uh, I would say America's, the United States is exceptionally exceptional um, because it, it alone among the Western democracies never had a major social democratic, socialist or, 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 or Labour Party. And so this was something that had always had always been on my mind as a graduate student in the United States. And actually, the last chapter of my dissertation, which looked at the, develop, the development of, of labour unions, trade unions in Britain, Germany and the United States in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries, the last chapter dealt precisely with this, uh, with this topic. And then in Marty Lipset, um, I found a, a um, an advisor who had um, actually looked at this from the time of his dissertation. Marty Lipset's dissertation, it was in, published in 1950, Agrarian Socialism, compared the Western United States to that of Canada, British Columbia, in terms of the development of of a social democratic party in in Canada and and not in in Washington, not in, in the United States. And so this was something that um, gravitated me to, uh, to him. And eventually we decided to write a, a, a book about this. And essentially what the book does is it, I suppose you could say it subjects to the comparative methods, the wide range of hypotheses, of hunches about the sources of this failure to create a a major durable um, socialist party in, 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 in the United States. It took us a long time to write because Marty was doing many other things. I was doing other things. This was the time of multi-level governance also, which was which um, took place in this time in, in terms of my, my uh, efforts to try to understand this. So this was a book that took around 15 years to write. And, it, and, and the way things worked with, with Marty Lips is that, that, that it was pretty... Independent, we would just write chapters or parts of chapters and send them to each other, and it was in a very ad hoc, uh, ad hoc book. Um, really, books because at some point there were two, two books that we um, that we merged into um, into one. Marty was always, I think, and this comes out in the the introductory chapter, more um, impressed by the role of individualism. Um, anti-statism and egalitarianism in the United States, I less so. And 
the in the, in the end the, the 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 fundamental thrust of the book was to examine the what we thought were the crucial decades around the turn of the 20th century for the development of a socialist party and the way in which the United States was unusual, not unique, because um, Tsarist Russia had the same disconnect between unions and the um, and, and the Socialist Party, um, well, in that case, the, uh, the Bolsheviks, as in the United States. So in this respect, the United States was rather similar to, to, to Russia. But what we, what we did in the book was subject these variety of hypotheses to comparative, to a diversity of comparative tests, really exploring the diversity of the comparative method, both comparing countries, um, areas, regions within countries, which was sharp in the United States. In 1912, the Socialist Party had had 8% in, 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 in Texas. In, in some of the Midwestern states, more than 16%, um, 6% overall, but with wide variations. So could we explain or say something to those variations? And then over time, so it was comparison across, within, and, and temporal comparison. And as I was saying, the main thrust of that book is to argue that relations between socialist unions and parties were, were critical. And they were critical because unions are rooted in the system of, of, of capitalism. As Samuel Gompers said, who was the, the president of the American Federation of Labor from its creation in 1886, right until um, the, the early 1920s, that workers wanted to get another dollar a day. Um, and he was deeply opposed to, uh, to socialism. The socialism of Eugene Debs, the five-time presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, who thought of the Socialist Party, he was a revolutionary socialist, was recognized as such uh, by, uh, by, by Lenin. Um, and these two never connected. So what do you see? I mean, just, just to frame this very um, kind of uh, cogently or transparently, in uh, the peak membership of the American Socialist Party was 118,000 in 1912. The Labour Party in that year had around 1.9 million members. Um, it wasn't that Labour was so weak in the United States. The American Federation of Labour was a, a, was, had, had a couple of million members in the early uh, 1900s. But what it was, and this takes us to the political sociology of these um, organizations, is that the American Federation of Labor, in order, it, it was a, based on craft unions, that is, unions of workers who had the social solidarity in the workplace to seek to control the supply of labor for their employers. So they were actually very aggressive. They actually wanted to shape the labor supply, not simply to deny it in a strike, but to control the supply of labor. And what that meant was that they were um, deeply concerned, frightened by the rise of mass immigration into the United States. So whereas the American Socialist Party said, workers of the world unite, the American Federation of Labor 
had this concept of job territory. They were going to protect their supply of labor, their job territories, from this mass of mostly Eastern European workers who would have loved to have gotten jobs as a cigar worker or a printer or a carpenter. And so the American Federation of Labor was ex exclusionary. And the American Socialist Party was a party of a revolutionary party of, 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 of workers. And what did that mean? Well, things came to a head in World War I, where in virtually every Western democracy, many of the socialists, they had seen World War coming in the Second International. They were deeply concerned about this. They were traumatized by it. And they wanted to resist their government's efforts to engage in, in war. But in every country, the unions were embedded in the ex existing society. And so when in Britain, George Lansbury, the pacifist um, activist within the Labour Party said, no, we, we have to support peace. Ernest Bevan essentially turned around to him and said, get lost. We, the unions, are going to support our country. The same thing happened in Germany. It was only Karl Leibniz and Rosa Luxemburg who opposed the German war effort of in August, in the vote of um, earlier August 4 of 1914. In the United States, the Socialist Party was against the war. It had a, a declaration in St. Louis in 1917, we will not support the war. The unions under Samuel Gompers were totally involved in it. Gompers was on all sorts of war committees, mobilizing labor and mobilizing industrial production. And so the Socialist Party collapsed in the war. It was subject to pretty intense repression and gained support only from those who supported Germany in the war. And so that split, I think, was absolutely crucial. And, and what, so in, in a sense, the Socialist Party in America was not a class party. It was a party of intellectuals. It was a small membership party. It was a party in which the membership varied very much from, from year to year. And, and yes, indeed, when you say labor movement, in, if you say labor movement in Britain, you mean or meant the unions in conjunction together with the Labour Party. It was a movement. And the Labour Party had that fundamental solidarity, that base for electoral performance and the, eventually the development of a major party. In the United States, when you say Labour movement, when you said Labour movement, it referred only to the unions. And so it was that the craft character of unions the development of mass immigration at a crucial time for the development of a socialist or, 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 or Labour Party. And so we really do in the book, we, I think we really do develop a political sociology of the failure of a, of a, a, a Labour Party in, or Socialist Party in, in the US. And then finally, we go on to the contemporary um, consequences which we do in the uh, in the final chapter, um, which I think has deeply shaped American society uh, today. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the the, the the current differences. And if we look, of course, at the mainstream left 
in Europe today versus the mainstream left in the United States. So social democratic socialist parties in uh, Europe and the Democratic Party in the United States, we might say that the differences are actually not that large. Would you agree? And if yes, or at least less le less big than, than they may have been uh, before. And if you agree with this uh, perspective, then what has changed? Has Europe changed or have the United States changed? No, that's a very good question. Look, I think the differences have narrowed because the the the, the labor movements in in Western Europe have are fragmented. And now there are many people who previously voted for Labour or socialist parties or parties of the left who um, now um, would support radical nationalist parties. So the era of, of socialism, if you like, the 20th century, which was the one of the main themes, perhaps the main political theme of the 20th century has, has I think, come uh, to an end. Um, but the consequences of, of this for for the United States, I think, are still absolutely transparent, absolutely clear. If you look at the um, the, the extent of taxation in the United States, um, the United States, you know, among OECD countries, the United States stands virtually alone in terms of its its limited taxation as a proportion of, of, uh, of per capita GDP. And what you see is, well, Chile and Mexico are members of the OECD. They're below the They, they have lower tax takes than the United States. But Chile and Mexico, among the Western democracies, the United States really stands out. And in terms of um, income distribution, I mean, the United States is right there on the edge. And again, Chile and Mexico are the ones that are more unequal. If, if for, for the taxation, the US is 24.3%, which is 10% less than the OECD um, average. And I think One, you know, a key reason for that is that those at the bottom of the of the society uh, did not have um, representation in a socialist or, or Labour Party. It's true that the Democratic Party is a, a very partial functional equivalent in a few states, in states like Wisconsin or or, uh, or Minnesota, for a particular time. The Labour farmer Labour parties there, you know, acted a little bit like. The social democratic um, parties, um, but essentially, what happened in the United States, beginning very clearly in the decades around the turn of the 20th century, is that when these immigrants came to the United States, the 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 attraction, the possibility of a Labour Party was really not present, and so that reinforced their sense that their identity was ethnic, that they would live in in Yiddish areas of New York or Italian areas of, of New York or Polish areas of, of Chicago and so on and so forth. There was no counter or a very weak counter um, to that. And I think that has had a very distinct effect on um, equality and the, and the state in, in the United States. So I do think that these kind of continue, despite the fact, as you're pointing out, that the difference now is not nearly as stark as it was in the immediate post-war era, when in several European countries, social democratic parties were one of the 
one of the major parties and in many countries participated or were actually leading uh, leading governments um, in those countries. Um, that is less the case today because socialism has 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 lost its salience in in these countries and socialist parties themselves have become more diverse. I wanted to ask you about the whole perspective of, of, of Lipset's work and maybe looking a little bit into the future. We already talked about the uh, core role that uh, socioeconomic social groups play for this uh, political sociology perspective on democracy and politics more generally. What I was wondering about is that many of the groups that we discuss and are looking at are still the socioeconomic groups of 100 years ago, right? We talk about religion, we talk about unions, we talk about the working class or the petite bourgeoisie. And I was wondering about the potential for the generation of, the, of new group identities, maybe, and the role um, of something that I think that has fundamentally changed in the past years, and this is new communication technology, media, social media. So the possibility that um, group formation is more independent of geography and just generally about being in the, in the same space and place, something that Lipset emphasized, for example, for factories, that this has now disappeared. And there is, in, in, in my opinion, potentially um, a new way of, uh, of political group formation uh, that could matter for the politics uh, in, the, in the next decades. Well, that's, you know, that is an interesting uh, question. The, um, interestingly, Marty Lipset was very um, acutely aware of the role of education. And for him, education was not simply a way of releasing an individual from their social background, but rather an expression of a particular set of orientations and also occupational possibilities. Um, and so education, I think, is, you know, one would have to add education and perhaps um, even put it above the influence of um, of religion in, in in Western Europe, so to those social, you know, to the list of social uh, proclivities, I think education you know, would have to be added, and and in a major way, particularly with respect to the contrast between green or gal parties and nationalist or tan parties. So I think that's that is fundamental, and interestingly. You know, one can root that back in the work of, of uh, Marty Lipset. Uh, I take your point about um, the, the possibility that territoriality or spatial proximity will exist alongside, you know, the possibility of communication across where distance doesn't matter. Um, one of the things that Lipset focused on was the extent to which individuals are integrated into different groups. That actually is at the core of the concept of cross-pressures, that you're integrated into, into different uh, groups. And one of the interesting things, key things, I think, about, um, about the internet is the way in which it can limit cross-pressures by allowing individuals to select for themselves echo chambers in which they receive confirmation of their of their priors. And so I think, you know, even that can, you know, even that Marty Lipset has something to, um, to, to say. You know, the one thing I wanted to mention, we haven't actually talked about Marty the person, 
And I think that would be, I just want to say a word about that with your, uh, if, if you think that's appropriate. When Larry Diamond and I were um, assembling the people for who could write his students, Marty Lipsitz students who could write in his, uh, his Feshrift, and there were several, what two things I'm struck is one, the diversity of those people. I mean, they include people like Theda Scotchpole and Emmanuel Wallerstein, people with very different views than Marty had. Marty Lipsitz in his, uh, in his latter life, became, I suppose, branded, but perhaps there was a reality there, as a neoconservative. And one of the things that's so distinctive about Marty Lipset is his um, tolerance, the fact that he was much more interested in explanation than prescription. And that allowed him to work with people like me. I mean, we worked on socialism. Um, Marty was a, Marty really did believe that, that, American individualism and anti-statism um, were perhaps the most important factors that uh, were responsible for the failure of socialism. And that and, and Marty and I never had a, a disagreement. We, 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 we didn't discuss politics. And when we did, we didn't disagree, really. We'd never had an argument about this and never in the context of writing the book. Um, and other people have confirmed that. Theda Scotchpole in particular talks about the way in which he was so um, so tolerant and kind to his students, irrespective of their political um, attitudes. Um, he was himself very egalitarian, and we all knew him as Marty. He was non-hierarchical. And then the final thing I think that we can all learn, and I think I did in particular from Marty Lipset, is his broad-ranging um, curiosity his the adventurousness and the diversity of his of his work that he was a fox in Isaiah Berlin's terms a fox and not a hedgehog people talk about his intellectual fearlessness and when you think about the diversity we've only just to be quite honest Terry you know we could have another conversation in which we didn't talk about any of those works that we've previously talked about and we could have another whole conversation about the other like his view on uh, views on intellectuals, so many other fields, um, status in, a, in in the United States. There are many other fields that he um, that he went into, and had that ability to summarize and generate original and, and interesting ideas uh, that often were controversial. The um, many of the things that we've talked about, the social requisites of democracy, working class authoritarianism, um, were really controversial, particularly from an ideological perspective, from the left, when he, when he produced that. Fascism and the middle class is another um, example of the diversity and the controversiality of, um, of his work. You know, maybe that's a way to, uh, to, to finish up. Um, political man, the man himself, Marty was a, um, a, a scientific man in the sense that he, um, he was so interested in in substantive explanation and little interested in a prescription, particularly with his students and his co-authors. I think that's a great way of finishing up. I would still ask you the final question I always ask to, to close the podcast. 
and that is for a reading recommendation, one piece of political science and a, a non-academic, non-political science piece. Um, well, I'm going to start with the non-academic. And in, um, in recent um, months and perhaps years, I've been rereading the works of Jane Austen, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, um, Mansfield Park, wonderful, wonderful novels that, um, that um, are just so uh, enjoyable. What, uh, there's a, there is a kind of, I suppose, just kind of extending the political sociology theme. She is so precise and so humorous in diagnosing the, um, uh, the foibles um, and the limitations of the aristocratic society that she writes about. She is very um, sharp in her criticism. And she has the ability to look at the world, to express the world in terms of the, the way in which a particular character sees the world. So she is, a, in a way, a cipher. And her dialogues are really marvellous with respect to their authenticity the way in which she can capture the world from different perspectives that are rooted actually in the um, existential circumstances, also mental circumstances, of, um, of an individual. So I really, um, just as a, um, a pleasure, I thoroughly recommend um, the works of, uh, of, of Jane Austen. Intellectually, it was much more difficult because there's so much one could choose from. Um, and a book that I've that I'm just kind of using now in a paper that I'm uh, trying to write with uh, with Lisbeth, um, Democracy for Realists by Chris Aiken and uh, Larry Bartels. And I think from our discussion, you probably one can figure out why I like that. And that is, it it seeks to place a spatial theory. It's not antithetical to a spatial theory. You know, there is this correlation between individual political preferences over issues and the positions that political parties take over those issues. Sure, there's a correlation. But what they do is they place that correlation in a larger causal framework. Now, their causal framework focuses on partisanship, which I think is, we have, which we haven't talked that much about, but is obviously very powerful in the United States I'm 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 talking to you now from from Chapel Hill, and um, in this uh, past election, I was an official um, election observer, poll observer, in um, in a place called Pearson County, which is an agrarian um, county north of um, north of Durham. Spent several days there, um, and that partisanship is so transparent there. I mean. There is that partisanship. And also, I have to say, the ethnic basis of that, because you see the canvases that the canvases that were there are kind of organizing groups. The Democrats tend to be talking to the Democrats, the Republicans talking to the Democrats. I must say it was very civil in that particular place. There was no, in inverted commas, stuff going on. So there really could be discussions, often apolitical, between those groups. But the partisanship in the United States is really very powerful, very transparent. What I would like to do is to place that into a, a yet larger causal frame, 
which is a cleavage frame where you can actually engage very directly the way in which individuals can perceive themselves in terms of groups having grievances. And I see that as a, an extension both of spatial theory and of a theory of partisanship. But the book itself is this realist conception of democracy, um, sceptical conception of, of democracy. I'm less interested in that, but it's very well written, very clearly um, argued, and I think well worth paying a serious attention to. Thank you, Gary. Really, uh, thank you so much for uh, this window into the work of uh, Marty Lipset and also just political sociology more generally. So really, thanks for participating in this podcast. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks, Tariq. Thank you very much.